Amen. Thank you guys for leading us to sing to the Lord together this morning. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 2. Continuing our series in the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to look at the ultimate sign. Destroy this temple. You're familiar with this account, this story of the cleansing of the temple. But we're going to look at this together in John chapter 2. Excited to do so with you. If you have found that, let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word together this morning. We're going to focus on verses 13 through 22, but I want to back up a couple of verses toward the end of our passage that Pastor Jeff preached last week that dealt with the first miracle at Cana of Galilee where Jesus turns the water into wine. So let's pick up in verse 11 of chapter 2. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes these words. This, beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he, had, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that we've been able to sing together. That we've been able to pray together. And now that we are able to sit under together. We pray that your word would continue its work in each of us. Father, your word intends through your spirit to do in each of us what you desire. And so that is our prayer. Holy Spirit, through your word, would you make your word powerful to us so that we might... Live it out in our lives. Use your word. Father, transform us by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what is the purpose of the book of John? We've talked about it for weeks now. We need not guess what the purpose of John is. John, in fact, tells us. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says these words. That he has written the gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John arranges this gospel book around seven signs that Jesus performs to demonstrate that He is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. The first sign, Pastor Jeff preached on last week, turning the water into wine. John says, as we just read a moment ago in verse 11, that this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These signs in John reveal the glory of Christ. In other words, they reveal his deity, his greatness. They reveal his supremacy over all things. That's why These signs are given to us to show that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He is the Son of God so that we might believe in who he is. John uses the signs of Jesus to validate who he is and what he came to do and to show that there's a dividing wall between those who believe in him and those who do not believe in him. In fact, in in, in John chapter 1, you'll remember in verse 12, John wrote these words. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, from from right out of the gate, John says... That this message about Jesus, those that receive it, are born from him, not because of who they are. My friend, if you are born again, if you know Christ, you have been born again, not because of who you are, not of blood. It's also not because of what you do. It's not your flesh that does this. John also says it's not also the will of man. In other words, it's not something you went looking for. You didn't go looking for God. God came looking for you, John tells us. So sandwiched in our passage this morning is John chapter 2 verse 11 where it says these were the beginning of the signs of Jesus and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. And verse 22 of our passage where it says, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed in the scripture and the word which he had spoken. So John is wanting to show us who Jesus is so that we might believe in him. And yet, as Pastor Jeff will pick up next week, we see that there are those that also might apparently believe. Don't miss this. There is a danger for us to sit in here today. There is a danger for you week after week to sit under the preaching of the word of God, to hear it in your families, to be around it all the time and give this outward appearance that you believe, but in reality there is no transformation within. My friend, there could could be nothing more dangerous than to think you follow Jesus when in fact you really don't. That's why to just jump ahead in verse 23 of chapter 2. John will say, 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. So apparently they saw what he was doing and many people believed him. But notice what John then tells us in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knows our hearts, beloved. He knows what's on the inside when on the outside it may seem as if we follow him. It's a very dangerous place to be. But John writes this passage for us. He writes this gospel for us so that we would not fall prey to that temptation of thinking we follow him when in fact we don't. He writes it so that we know that we have life in him. So in our passage today, Jesus is asked to provide a sign. To validate that he has authority to do what he does in our passage. Namely, to drive away money changers from the temple area. However, the sign asked for by the people is not immediately given in our passage. It's only referred to. Yet this sign that Jesus mentions in our passage is the ultimate sign upon which all of Christianity hangs. If what Jesus says in our passage is not true, hear me, if it's not true, then shut the doors and let's go home. We have nothing to celebrate. We have no one to worship. We have no reason to be here. But I would submit to us that everything hangs on what Jesus says in this passage. Therefore, we have reason to be here. We have reason to worship. More specifically, Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate sign that we must believe. That's what he's talking about. That's the core of this account. Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate sign of what you and I are called to believe. So let's break that down. Let's do so with some questions. Here's the first question for our passage. What on earth, and I just add the word earth, what's going on here? What on earth is going on here? Well, if you look again at verse 13 and 14, John says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Was near, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, when he, when, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. The house of God, here's what's going on. The house of God was no longer a place of worship, but it had become a place of business. A bazaar. A marketplace, if you will. After Jesus' miracle at Cana... In turning the water into wine, his family and his disciples get away for a few days in Capernaum. This is often a pattern in Jesus' ministry. We see it starting here in John. We see it in the other gospel accounts. There were times where he would get away and, if you will, recharge. That's good and that's appropriate. And that's what he seems to do here. It's just before the Passover in Jerusalem... This Passover that's mentioned in our text seems to be the first Passover that Jesus observes in his ministry, public ministry. As we begin this section in chapter 2, it's important to note that Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
place the temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry. But this in John is given to us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So what is it that's going on? Is there a contradiction? Are the gospel writers in contradiction as to when this occurred? Did it happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Or did it happen at the end of Jesus' ministry? Well, that's a great question. Because of the slight differences between John's account and Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined together and John on his own, because of the slight difference of those accounts, along with when these cleansings occurred in their gospel accounts, it seems most logical that there were two temple cleansings. That this happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it seems that it happened also at the end, some two to three years later, at the end of his public ministry. So, as a faithful Jew, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover to do what? To celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. That's what he's doing. Why is it important for Jews to make the journey to the temple from all over the known world to make that journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? Well, as one New Testament writer, Andreas Kossenberger, explains it, he says this, The Jerusalem temple was a symbol of Jewish nationality and religious identity. In other words... In coming to the temple, people were identifying as the nation of Israel and at the same time as the people of God. In their minds, to be one is also to be the other. To be the people of God was to be Jewish, to be an Israelite. While this was the second temple for the Jews, in other words... This temple that Jesus is going to had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel. We'll just call him Z for simplicity. So Z rebuilds this temple that had been destroyed. But yet we're told in our passage that this temple was taking 46 years. So at the time of Jesus, it was undergoing some renovation from Herod. And so we'll be alluded to in a moment this 46 years of building the temple. It was under construction. Yet both the Old Testament and those that would follow this second building of the temple that Jesus is actually part of would affirm that there's an expectation in the Jewish community that there would be a day in which there would be a new temple. One in which the Messiah would reign from that temple. And so the Jews are expecting that. They're longing for that. They're looking forward to that day. And they're wondering when it would arrive. However, as we see in John and the New Testament, our identity is not wrapped up in a building. Our identity is not wrapped up in a nationality. It's anchored in Jesus himself. Further, this incident in the cleansing of the temple is not a random or uncontrolled outburst of anger by Jesus but an overflow of Jesus' zeal for the right worship of God. Jesus is redirecting misplaced passion. That's what he's doing. People had traveled from all over to celebrate 
the Passover in Jerusalem. Because many outside travelers had come to Jerusalem, both animals and money exchange is provided in the courtyard. So because you traveled such a long distance and you couldn't haul your oxen or your sheep or your birds, and you might not have the current currency needed, they provided a service in the courtyard for all those traveling. The idea is that this service is a help to travelers as they come to worship God. But it becomes clear by Jesus' own response that this service was anything but a help. By the time of Jesus, this practice had become quite the business, particularly for the priests. Instead of the courtyard being a place of quiet prayer that allowed the people to come into the courtyard area in preparation of entering the temple area, preparing their hearts and praying to the Lord, it had become a noisy marketplace. It had become a place of chaos. Here you have a crowded area of oxen. I mean, can you imagine all the noises and the sheep? And all the doves. I don't know what a dove, maybe it's like, whatever noise a dove makes, right? You have all this noise, you have all this smell, you have all these tables set up for people to come over and you hear the clanging of coins as they're being exchanged. The temple for the Jews was supposed to represent the presence of God. Where God would come and meet with the people through a mediator, the priest, on behalf of the people. It was a sacred place of worship where they most identified as the people of God. However, instead, Jesus finds the temple as a place of commerce rather than a place of worship. If we were to fast forward a couple of chapters... In chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well, a Samaritan. Now, we all know the story of this Samaritan woman. and We all know the conflict and the racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. And yet, while we'll unpack that chapter in, in the coming weeks, it's important to note that Jesus has a conversation with this woman at the well. And in the course of their conversation, she tries to argue with Jesus about where the proper place of worship is located. That's relevant to our text in chapter 2. Why? Because Jesus ultimately tells her that worship of God is not, not about what one's location or one's nationality. We're not made right with God based upon where we worship or who we are. We're made right with God by whose we are. That's what's going on in our passage. That's the context by which Jesus enters into Jerusalem during the Passover and engages with the chaos that's taking place in the temple area leading into uh, the courtyard area leading into the temple area. So here's a second question we can pose. Not only what's going on here, but, but secondly, how does Jesus respond? What does he do? Well, let's look at it. Verse 15 again. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, first of all, Jesus sees through their hypocrisy. And my friend, he sees through ours as well. They thought, at least outwardly, they tried to convey that they were helping those that had traveled into Jerusalem for the Passover. They were being a help to them by offering these animals to buy and purchase for sacrifice and to exchange currency. But when in fact they weren't being a help, they were actually being hypocrites. So what does Jesus do? He drives away the money changers and the animals. I don't know exactly how he does it. He, he takes a whip and uh, he releases all the animals and he's going through the courtyard area, untying the animals and opening cages and all of a sudden it just gets really wild as animals are fleeing, as tables are being overturned, as money is going rolling down the stone pathways, clankety, clankety, clank, and all the animals are, are hollering out. He drives them away. Jesus does not find their activity pleasing to God in any way. Imagine the chaos of all these animal noises. The coin clinging and the people bartering. So, he makes a scourge of cords, a whip, and he drives away the animals while pouring out the coins and overturning the tables. You see, not only do we have the chaos of the marketplace environment and the misplaced passion on profit rather than on God, but we also have religious leaders using their role to take advantage of the people. They see an opportunity. And what do they do? They pounce on those that had come to worship. Jesus leaves no room for religious leaders camouflaging their sin through their religious duties. Let me be very clear for just a moment. In light of recent days in our own convention of churches, this must be said. There is absolutely no room for those who pose as pastors and leaders in a church to ever take advantage of any person, anytime, in any way. It's never acceptable. We must always stand on the side of gospel integrity and gospel faithfulness. We must do everything we can to protect people and in no way ever, ever abuse them or ever mistreat them. And if you are someone that has ever been hurt or abused or mistreated in any way, let me point you to the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ, my friend. But let me also encourage you to find someone you can trust and share that with so that you can begin to share that experience and heal from that experience and find hope in Christ through your hurt. My friend, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. God is very clear both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that his shepherds are to be protectors and never, never predators in any way. So we see in our passage that they cannot fool Jesus. They can't fool him. He knows this has become a market for them, a money-making machine for them. They can't fool him. But friend, neither can we. 
Whether we come here to help lead in worship or to participate, Jesus sees through our potential facade. He, he, he sees right to the heart. We can't hide it. I was sharing with David earlier about being in the country that they're going to and uh, snorkeling in the waters there that are just crystal clear. The beauty is, is unmatched. Not to scare you guys, but there's things that swim in that water. And because it's so clear, you can see it. It's right there. You can see it. You know, when you go to the ocean here in the East Coast, it's usually murky and muddy. And you're like, well, at least I can't see it. I don't know which is better, which is worse. Being in it and knowing there's stuff in it, but at least you can't see it. Or being in it and seeing it. I don't know. you got to choose your fate with that. But here's the reality. Jesus sees right through any potential facade that we would put up. Whether we come saying that we've come to worship. He knows our hearts. Friend, he knows our hearts and he knows why we've come here today. Whether you are preaching the sermon, whether you are leading in song, whether you're serving in various ministries or simply sitting in the seats, Jesus knows what's behind our outward service. He sees it. He sees through us. Outwardly, they had come to sacrifice their time at the temple, their money, and their energy to come to Jerusalem. Outwardly, the priests and the religious leaders were there doing their duty. Outwardly, we're here today. But, but Jesus sees our hearts and he knows why we're here. You and I might be able to fake it with each other and with others. But Jesus is never ever fooled so why does Jesus respond this way well in verse 16 he says take these things away stop making my father's house a place of business in other words he says you're here to make money you're not here to offer up worship so the question we should ask ourselves is why are we here while the Jews came to Jerusalem to worship God because they believed ultimately his presence was there. Jesus knew that it was not about a place that people come to in order to worship. In righteous anger, he runs the people and the animals away. And then his disciples remember something. Whether they remembered it right then or maybe a little bit later, John's not really clear. But they remember something. They reference Psalm 69.9. In verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 is from King David. It's a psalm speaking about David as a righteous sufferer. David speaks of both his enemies and his own kin. His own family that will turn their back on him. Verse 17 quotes this psalm. Zeal for your house will consume me. 
what exactly David meant in Psalm 69 as to the zeal for God's house, we're not exactly sure. Kossenberger suggests some options that I think are helpful. One, David in Psalm 69 could be referring to this. To the physical care of the house of God. Though the temple was not yet built, there was the tent, right, the tabernacle. And so there was the physical care of that structure. Perhaps David is concerned about it being taken care of in that way. Perhaps David in Psalm 69 is concerned for the proper conduct in the temple area. There were certain ways to behave and not ways to behave as you approach the temple. And maybe David has got that in mind in Psalm 69. Uh, Perhaps David is also concerned or perhaps his main concern is the condition of the people of God in general. Maybe that's the zeal for God's house that David is speaking of in Psalm 69. What we do know is this. John links Jesus to David, the righteous sufferer. Jesus' zeal for the Father's house will consume him. Ultimately, Jesus redirects our zeal toward God instead of the greed of man. Jesus is saying that your zeal ultimately can't be on stuff and on things and on yourself, but ultimately our zeal has to be directed toward God himself. In the immediate context, Jesus' passion for God is what will evidently and eventually consume him. Say what? Yeah, Jesus' passion for God the Father is what will eventually consume him. In other words, it will lead him to death. Because his desire to do the will of the Father. Jesus' passion for God's house and being consumed by that passion. Consumed in the idea of, of dying will be for a people, not a building. Jesus' passion is not for a particular location. It's for a particular people. It's for all the peoples of the world. That's why John will later write in the book of Revelation that the lamb purchased with his blood people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's about a people, not a building. Just as David had plots against him and was consumed by his enemies. John is telling us that there will be plots against Jesus. And these plots certainly begin to mount. So the people insist that Jesus show them a sign. To prove that he has the authority to do what he just did. What did he do? He ran off the animals. He overturned the tables. He got rid of all of the animals. And he flipped over The coin buckets. How do you have the authority to do such a thing? Notice that they don't ask for a sign so that they might believe in him. They ask for a sign so that they might say, what gives you the authority to do what you just did? Verse 18. What gives you the authority to do what you just did? Jesus points them to the ultimate sign. Here's your sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days I 
will raise it up. The people insist that Jesus show them a sign as proof of his authority to do what he did. And he says, here is your sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. How could he make such a statement? Who does he think he is? Friends, John has already told us. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, so that believe in him and you will have life. So what's going on here? How does Jesus respond? Our third question. How must we respond? How should we respond? Look at verse 20. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So how should we respond? First of all, let me suggest, not as the Jews. In unbelief. Not as the Jews. How should you respond? How should I respond? Not as the Jews in disbelief. How do these religious leaders and Jews respond to Jesus' statement? Ultimately, it's in unbelief. And also, we might add misunderstanding. They didn't understand what he meant in verse 19. Destroy this temple. Are you kidding me? It took 46 years to get where we're at. And you say you can destroy this temple, and in three days you'll resurrect this temple? Who do you think you are? You see, they believe is. They believe Jesus is talking about Herod's temple. He's not talking about Herod's temple. In fact, he's talking about himself. But for the people, they're thinking, how can Jesus raise this temple up in three days when it's been a project of 46 years? Are you in with M&M Interior? I mean, do you have some inside connections with some folks that can come in and, and do some construction work? What, who are you? I thought you built tables and rocking chairs. You're going to rebuild this temple? So don't respond as the Jews. Secondly, how should we respond? Well, we got to understand what Jesus meant. We need to understand what Jesus meant. Verse 21 explains, John does, what he meant. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. John tells us that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple building. He was talking about his own body. This is the sign. Here it is. Here's your sign. Jesus will die and be raised on the third day. Hear me, friend. If that is true, if that is true, you and I must bank everything on that truth. You must live your life because of that truth. But if it's not true, then do what you want. But I'm here to tell you it is true. John is beginning to help his readers see that Jesus is greater than the temple. And the rituals and the sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. He is the object of our worship. Because why? He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the sacrifice. 
He is, as John will say and has already said, the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sin of the world. So the focus of our worship is not the location of a physical temple, but the temple of his body, his person, himself. So how do we respond? By understanding what Jesus meant. A third way we respond. As the disciples did. With wholehearted trust. Wholehearted belief. Verse 22. It wasn't until after Jesus was raised from the dead that the disciples put all these pieces together. It's like the light bulb went off. Jesus was talking about his body. Not the temple building. You ever been there? You ever have those light bulb moments? For the disciples, that's what happens. In fact, John at the end of his gospel will tell us that it's the Holy Spirit that will bring to the mind of the disciples all that Jesus said and taught and did. They go like Gomer Pyle on it. Golly! I mean, it's like all of a sudden they're like, how did we not see this? How did we not get this? But that's what happens. Friend, you're not required to journey to a far land to make your way to a temple. You're not required to purchase animals for sacrifice for your sins and the sins of your family. Nor are you required to perform rituals and give of your money. Jesus has made all the rituals and the sacrifices and the offerings obsolete. They are fulfilled in him. His death and his resurrection are our only hope. Believe this and be saved from your sin. Believe this, believer, and be encouraged today. Believe this, follower of Christ, and worship him for who he is and what he's done. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And lastly, how do we respond? I would say this. Wait for the new temple. Wait for the new temple. Friend, we wait in a world filled with loss and pain and death and sin. We wait for something else, something greater than what this world is offering us. We wait for the rest of the story. We wait for the finish line. We wait for Jesus to right all the wrongs. The Bible promises one day that there will be a new city where the people of God will gather and worship at the temple. Not a building of stone, but before God himself. For in that new city, there will be no temple. 
Listen as I close to our author John now as an elderly man as he describes this day. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God himself has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it, but only, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. May May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. The lamb who was slain for our sins. We thank you that we don't come to a building hoping that your presence will be there. Come knowing that your presence will be there because your presence is within us because of your Holy Spirit. And so we long for the day where there will be a new city where your people will gather at the temple, not a building of stone, but before you, God. And we will worship you forever and ever. God, I know that there would be some here today that have never submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. They're, they're living in their own sin and living out their own desires. And I pray that you would arrest their hearts, that you would arrest their wills, and that you would transform them by the power of your grace. That even right now they would cry out, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Save me and change me. Make me new by your power. Lord, I know that there are many in this room that follow after you. And I pray that we might be marveled at this sign which you give us that they could destroy this temple in three days. You would raise it to life. Thank you, Jesus, that through your death and your resurrection, all who believe in you have life through you. Oh, God, help us to marvel at that promise and help us to worship you in response to it we love you but our love for you as John will write later is only because you first loved us and we thank you and praise you in Jesus name amen